Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Richard is the current head of people at Scale AI after being the first recruiting hire at Cruise Automation, where he helped bring the team from 10 to 700 employees in three years. Prior to leading people teams, Richard was an engineer at Venmo and a CS major at MIT. We discussed the unique perspective his technical background gives him in recruiting, how to solicit genuine feedback from employees, and building a leveling system. I hope you enjoy listening to the episode as much as I did recording it. Richard, uh, excited to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Good. Excited to be speaking with you today. So you've uh, you've helped scale two big organizations, Cruise and and Scale, and on both the, the the recruiting side and the people side. And we're going to dive into the nuts and bolts. But first, wanted to start with a higher level question, which is that you don't have a traditional recruiting and people background. In fact, you're a computer science major at MIT. What do you think your unique background? enables you to see that maybe other others don't? And h- how do you think about as you evaluate other and as you advise founders to uh, evaluate recruiting and, and people, people, you know, wh- what's important as it relates to background? Yeah. So um, so my background, I went, I'm not sure how much people know about this already. I went to MIT, computer science degree, et cetera. I don't think like you need to have those qualifications in order to, to be in a people or a recruiting role. But I do think there's a level of uh, analytical rigor and comfort with numbers and data, I think, that comes from that. And I do think at its core, um, in order for one to be influential and be effective, you need to be able to process, analyze data and make recommendations based off that, be able to run, you know, controlled scientific, scientifically controlled experiments as, as much as possible and be able to say like, this is what we should do. And this is why, because ultimately what your role is as an HR business partner is to influence the business to make the right decisions. You aren't able to just say like, this is my decree. We should do this now. This is our policy. Unless it's like, you're breaking the law if you don't do this. Um, but the more interesting insights you can gather are from being able to influence. And I think there's also, I mean, depends on what your organization is looking for, but I think uh, a level of being able to resonate with the um, people at the company and being able to speak a similar language to them. And this is through the lens of having worked at two very technical companies, a lot of engineers, et cetera. And maybe that's not what your companies need. And that's totally valid too. So there, there's probably a lot of people who have a deeply analytical background um, who themselves might be technical, who don't think that the people role is for them, but maybe if they were open to it, they might love it actually. So, so and I'm sure a yeah. bunch of people have asked you for advice or you've told some people, hey, have you considered this? What advice do you give them or how should people think about that? Yeah, I'll start off by ask, answering a similar question, which is how did I get into this to begin with? And for me, it was really just reflecting and being honest with myself about what I was truly interested in. I was thinking to myself, like, what are the problems I think about in the shower? Or what are the problems I think about when I wake up in the morning? What doesn't require a lot of mental energy for me to remember? Like, it was always very easy for me to remember different people's names, backgrounds, motivations, but I'd have a hard time remembering um, different syntax and different programming languages. And so I had to just be really honest with myself because this was a big, tough decision, right? Because, you know, software engineers get make, like, make like twice as much <laughs> as entry-level recruiters do. Um, it was a really big decision. That was the first decision I made in my career, but I was just being honest with myself and saying, like, this is what I'm more interested in. So if you are finding yourself to be 
just interested in people problems. Um, if you find yourself really just excited about like how this org should be built or how do we incentivize people to do the right things or um, how do we like develop talent, all those things, there is a role for you. And I do think that HR as a function is becoming more, especially at least in my environment in tech in Silicon Valley, it's becoming more and more sophisticated. I think we're getting a lot more um, excitement from, from founders and from VCs, talent partners telling their founders to like invest in this earlier and can have an impact. And so if you do fashion yourself like an analytical person, I do think there is that appetite. There is going to be that appetite from founders, investors, et cetera, to be trying to convince you to join a people role and you should embrace that if you can. Talk about that, that evolution. What does it mean to say that we are getting more sophisticated or, or what are the ways in which we're getting more sophisticated and, and what does that look like? Yeah. So I think very traditional HR is like, make sure the company doesn't get sued. And so, you know, I have my careers in that length. I don't know how long that's been, how, how old school that mindset is or how many companies take on that mindset or whatever. But it's about not doing things wrong versus doing things right, I think, traditionally. And I think more of the modern companies think about how do we like do really, really well, how do we do excellent. Like, for example, uh, one of the things I find really interesting about HR is you, you have, to have to take on different mentalities or different situations. And one situation, it could be very much a do everything by the book, follow these laws, do not break these policies, like don't, you know, minimal deviation. Another, another in my next meeting, I could be talking about how to build the um, like performance management system. And yeah, there are some like should do's and there are some things you obviously shouldn't say, but really it's more about being really creative and innovative and how to kind of get the best of people. And uh, so I think there's more and more of this mindset that HR can be an asset in helping you think about how to develop people, how to grow people, how to get employee feedback, how to organize and structure your company in an effective way, how to think about challenging challenging conversations with the company, like how to talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, for example. And these are very strategic topics. These are very analytical, or it's very important to be analytical and talk about these, these topics. It's important to be empathetic when talking about these topics. It's not just about like doing things by the book. Yeah. And I'm sure there are, you know, when you evaluate people, people, there are people that, these aren't mutually exclusive, of course, but there are people who tend to be more empathetic and there are people who tend to be more analytical. Mm-hmm. Right? And so are the best people a bit of both or the best teams have a combination <laughs> of both? Definitely both. And I mean, I do think the two go hand in hand. I think the two are correlated with one another because I think if you are more analytical, you can say, you can take your empathy and apply it to a broader group of people. So I think that the two um, add to each other versus detract. Totally. You can help sort of redirect misplaced empathy or misunderstanding, you know, empathy at a short-term construct at the, at the the expense of a much larger group or, or, or future thing that you're not being empathetic for at the moment, basically. Totally. Totally. Okay, so the prompt of this podcast is, you know, I'm imitating, although not that far from reality, a seed or series A founder who is product that's working, things are starting to grow, just raised a bunch of money, and now needs to build out a recruiting team, needs to build out an HR team and and soon, you know, and scale uh, o- over time. And so maybe you could start by talk we could start with recruiting because that's where you started at Cruise and and maybe you could talk about uh, but also at scale you're the two like what is the first recruiting hire? Maybe tra- uh, take us through like what the recruiting org will look like from your first hire uh, and, and then beyond. Yeah. So typically when I talk to founders who are making their first recruiter hire, they're usually around 
uh, 20 people already, and they're looking to add about 20 people into the company. Rough, rough guidelines of when that first hire is being made. Uh, what I generally advise people to do is to be open to a couple different possibilities and options because you don't need to literally hire a recruiter. Um, I think like the most likely outcome to happen is you hire a really eager, motivated like recruiting coordinator, someone who can um, keep organized. And generally, I've, I've seen recruiting coordinators double as executive assistants, double as office managers. In the meantime, just so you can like hire somebody to like start immediately adding value, because a lot of recruiting is the foundations of recruiting is just getting the basics right. It's like not forgetting about candidates, uh, being clear about you know what are the different job descriptions, who's responsible, who's the hiring manager, who's responsible for hiring each of these, making sure the job is posted on the website, getting back to people, soliciting referrals every once in a while. These are not like these are logistical tasks. They're not something that requires like someone with 15 years of recruiting experience to do. So I actually think that's the most likely outcome. Like I oftentimes people ask me like, oh, how do you find someone like like you to be like, I want to hire someone like you to be my first group. I'm like, that's not going to happen. So to, or like that's very unlikely to happen. Um, I generally advise founders to always just be constantly asking uh, that, you know, most impressive people on the network to ask them, hey, who are just the most impressive people? Who should I get to know? And just constantly put themselves in a position to get lucky so they can find someone with a very non-traditional background um, if they are interested in hiring someone with background such as my own. But you can't count on that. You shouldn't build your system around that. And so when I mean, you're hiring that first recruiter, um, you should definitely uh, be open to hiring that per- first recruiter. But I think the most likely outcome is to hire like that really eager recruiting coordinator and to develop the muscle first within yourself, but also within the leaders within your company to be that hiring manager. Because ultimately, like a hiring manager can do all the things that a recruiter does. I don't think it's necessarily the best use of their time. And definitely recruiters have like an expertise um, that can add a lot of value, but it's not a, a, a role that's strictly required for whatever reason. And so if you can develop your, your hiring managers to take on some of these like more sophisticated recruiting tile tasks, like understanding candidate motivations, selling, uh, providing a really um, good pitch for the company, things like that, then you can pair them with a coordinator while you hire that recruiter. And do you want me to go into like first recruiter profile or? Yes, please. Exactly. Yeah. It'd be great. <laughs> yeah. So I think generally, um, people oftentimes fall into the whole like, Oh, let me just get someone from a really reputable company. Like let me get like a recruiter from Facebook, but it's just like a totally different world that they're coming from. And they could be very much so a good fit. But I think the key things you want to look for are one, you want someone who's adaptable because things are going to change constantly. Um, and you don't want someone who is just used to, and this is just generally applicable advice. I'd say not specific to hiring a recruiter, but someone who's really adaptable. Two is someone who can have a very fast learning rate, goes hand in hand with being able to be adaptive, but it's comfortable with that, that um, from a, uh, just like, there's A, comfortable with that, which is adaptable, and B, like capable of, of, of thriving that environment, which I think is that fast learning rate. Um, and then C, it's ideally someone who can sell and, and build a pitch and with your company versus like, oh yeah, well, I'm used to a company that sells itself because it's freaking, you know, Google or whatever. Um, and you don't want to fall in the trap of like, just because they can hire into that big company and they have someone who's already feeding them the narrative that they'd be a success and be successful here. And I think regardless of what type of hire, um, what type of role you're hiring into as a, as a founder, early stage company, you want someone who, um, is proactive, who wants to take on ownership. I think you wrote a tweet this morning that was something along these lines. Actually, Eric, I was looking at your Twitter before this. And um, so someone who is like eager to solve problems versus waiting for problems to be presented to them. So I think that's uh, applies here as well when your first recruiter hire. And um, let's say we make the first recruiter hire. 
how should we think about planning for how the recruiting org should scale? Or what, what, uh, what does that growth look like of that org? Yeah. So I think the small pod team would be like a coordinator. Um, usually a recruiting coordinator can support like two to th- like three recruiters. And then in my experience, anytime I brought in a sourcer, so sourcer is somebody who does primarily outreach and, and the recruiter is someone who takes the uh, candidate through the entire funnel all the way from applicant or, or outreach message all the way through closing. Uh, so a sourcer, sometimes you get the advice like hire a sourcer to you know, generate more time of funnel. If you're not getting enough inbound, not getting enough referrals or whatever. It, it, I can see situations where that would be very valuable. In my personal experience, um, I've been fortunate to work at companies that have uh, really taken off really, really quickly. And the problem hasn't been at least at like the 50 to 100% stage, not getting enough inbound or referrals. And so I've had to convert them into full cycle recruiters pretty quickly because there's just so many different hiring managers that need support. So could hire a source or once you've hired a couple of recruiters, you might end up finding yourself like converting that person to recruiter anyways. And then you want someone who can be like a leader. It could be your head of people. It could be your head of engineering if they're really recruiting inclined. It could be someone dedicated to be, you know, your first recruiter to be someone who has managerial strategic experience who's willing to like roll up the and get their hands ready. So there's a variety of different profiles that could work out, but it's about understanding the failure modes of each and being able to yeah. support them and complement them with other people. And when, when you've been through that growth and the problem is just being able to handle all the inbound, have you ever just taken someone else from someone, you know, somewhere else in the org and said, Hey, for three months, you're just focused on recruiting. <laughs> uh, absolutely. In fact, that's how I got into recruiting to begin with was, so my <laughs> older brother was one of the first engineers at like one of the first five engineers at Dropbox back in 2008. And I would not, I think, have been so comfortable going into recruiting myself as a full-time job if he hadn't been uh, selected to be the... So he was like a, you know, a quote-unquote real engineer who was like <laughs> building a lot of the core features for, the, for, for Dropbox back then. But he ran engineering recruiting for a year. And uh, I don't think I've done anything as extreme in my career in my companies, the companies that I've worked at, but that is certainly something that companies do. I think the most successful companies are the ones where there is somebody from the team itself, it's typically engineering because the close rates are... You know, it's just so much harder to close engineers who is deeply invested in in the hiring process. I do think that's a, it's a magic combination. So that's probably even more important. Quite frankly, like getting an engineer who's just really excited about the problem and throwing them at the problem is more important than whoever you hired to be your first recruiter. Yeah, and how, how about as, as you're growing your team, maybe your Series A, Series B company, or or, or beyond? When are you really hiring like your most senior recruiter or your VP of recruiting, or what, what does it look like at, at more executive level? At uh, the executive level, I think you should be open, but. I mean, I've worked at companies that have grown so quickly that like what you need for your, your, you know, your VP, it changes after a year. And the, you know, the classic problem is like, how much are you solving for, for today versus for a year or two from now? Because someone who's really successful here from now is not necessarily the person who's successful today. So I think um, it's one, like understanding like your growth rate. And I think you want someone who, I think you'll, it'll be good if you get someone who I think, who you think will be, will do a great job for the role that is needed for the next 18 months. And if you can, they can last longer than that, great. Although it might mean you're not growing as fast as you might want to if they are still able to, to do that in 18 months down the road. But it, it just really depends. But I would say you hire your director or talent once you bring in more than 50 to, a, I think, 50 to 100 people per year. Someone who maybe not literally has the title of director, but someone who can set the strategy and independently run hiring, who can build the LKRs for the team, who can do the planning, et cetera. Yeah. You know, there's this adage, of course, hire slow, fire fast. But during hypergrowth, you don't have that privilege. So, you know, Keith Boy has this thing of like, get to 70% conviction and, and then pull the trigger and don't aim for zero defect hiring. 
what is your yeah. framework or philosophy on hiring during hypergrowth? Yeah, no, I agree. I haven't heard that literal, but I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, everyone loves to say that like, you know, oh, bad hires are super expensive. It's true. But in practice, like, you're not going to know for sure. And there's, especially when you're in early stage of the company, you likely have what's I've seen it in my career a couple of times is you have people who are really, really great early employees with a lot of influence, but then you need to bring in uh, people who might not be have a um, as well-rounded of a skill set as they do. They might not have the exact same answer, but they're still like really valuable. And so you're not going to have this like objectively correct like definition, like this person is an 85.5% risk of like being a poor hire or whatever. It's just not yeah. going to happen. So you just need to like be comfortable with, with the unknown and taking some risk. Yeah. And so when you advise startups, seed series a maybe they're not going as fast as scale or cruise but they're but they're growing they're doing well what what mistakes do you see them typically make or misconceptions as they start to build out their their recruiting processes and org like where do startups get get tripped up honestly i think the biggest thing is if you just focus on getting all the basics right you're like ahead of 80 percent of so just like have like have someone who can follow what people have someone who sometimes you get questions like how do you craft the perfect job description like don't worry about that like 80 20 of that like that's not going to ultimately matter that much. Just like get, if you get all of the basics, right. And so the basics are don't drop balls, have a very consistent like process, make sure everyone knows what the process is. Like what are yeah. the basics? basics, I would say. So first, when it comes to top of funnel, have a little bit going in each of the sources. So the four different, the way I think about how to categorize the four different sources are inbounds, that's applicants, outreach, which is sourcing, um, reaching out to people, LinkedIn, whatever other methods. Uh, referrals is a big one, especially in an early stage company. And lastly, would be events. You could also classify agencies. I'd say that's like a fifth, or it comes at, or that's like some sourcing. And so, um, have some intentional strategy for each of these. Have like maybe it's like okay, like we're really big on referrals, so that's when we really dive in, dive deep in. But like we want to have some inbounds. Let's make sure jobs are posted on, um, like for a general job on LinkedIn for a more niche job. Like you're looking for a robotics engineer, maybe posted on like, like robotics worldwide for whatever. Like just have something going in each of these categories and really dive in on, on one of them. That's like the top of funnel. And then mid funnel, it's the just knowing like what the process is and yeah. who should like who is the next step. You waste a lot of cycles just be like, oh, I thought this person was supposed to speak this. Oh, I thought this person was supposed to speak this next. Oh, this person was a maybe. Who gets to decide like whether they move forward or not? Like you just waste a lot of time with that. So that is yeah. like focus on that. Get that right. And you'll you have eighty percent of companies out there. Totally. I resonate there. How about on referrals? What have you seen work really well in terms of how companies can incentivize referrals among their team? Yeah. I mean, the best way is just to have a company that people are genuinely like, think about it from the lens of like, how do I get people to be really excited to work here? Don't worry about how do I get them to submit a lot of referrals and that problem will submit, will solve itself. Um, I mean, you want to do what I think of as nowadays as the basics would be like having a referral incentive. So uh, $5,000 referral bonus I think it's pretty common at this point and having a clear, uh, just lowering the barrier to entry, but without making it total like spam fest. So like by lowering the barrier to entry, I mean like being clear, like this is how you submit a referral, go into lever, like here's like a how-to guide or like just when I was doing it here, like just slap me the name of the person I'll follow up with them. Just make it really easy for, for people to do it. I think those are the two like referral specific things you do, but otherwise you just like make your workplace genuinely awesome and have people like genuinely want to like yeah. refer people. Oh, and then maybe like every couple all hands or so go over a list of like roles that you are looking for. Like here's top two, like please submit referrals for this one. Right. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, we, we certainly celebrate at all hands, the people that, that did the referrals and, and, you know, make that high status. There's another adage that uh, early on in the company, you're hiring sort of generalists, 
uh, often younger folks. And then as you, as you're growing and, you know, over 50, you're hiring for more seasoned specialists. Is, is, is that true in your experience? How, how did that evolve at, uh, at, at cruise and scale? Yeah. I mean, so Cruise had some roles that were more, I mean, Cruise were working on self-driving cars. We needed specialists, people who are computer vision experts, um, you know, controls experts. So we needed specialists at scale. We didn't need as many, uh, specialists. We need people who are really strong problem solvers, fast, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think it just comes down to the needs of your company. I think if there is a more common failure mode, generally speaking, I think people probably, it's more likely to focus on the specialists. you and so err on the side of the generalist, but depends on your situation. Totally. How do you teach recruiters how, how to sell? Yeah. So, and this is from the lens of I'm like a founder, I'm like an early employee and trying to, um, so that's a good question. I've always had it from the lens of like, I'm the recruiting leader. Um, if I'm advising a founder on how to, let me think about this for a second. And I would say, maybe don't even think about necessarily as how do I teach the recruiter how to sell, but generally how do I teach the people at the company how to sell because every person every person should be selling in some capacity every interaction whether you like it or not is a a conversation where the candidate is evaluating the company and so i would say focus on like do the people at this company know the narrative for why this company is going to be successful what is our strategy what is our plan what is our vision what could go wrong focus on you know every i think scale we're doing it like we have some light version of this every every month or so, and then like one like quarterly uh, recap. Um, usually after a board meeting, we present this is what we talked about with the board. This is like what our next steps are. This is our plan, et cetera, et cetera. And so, if you have that down, I think that's the foundational step in thinking about like how do we just educate people here versus like teaching rec- like recruiters specifically how to sell. Then you can get into the nitty gritty of like some individuals might not have that. Um, social skill they might not be totally comfortable and then there's some like tactical like i have done like trainings with interviewers or like spend the first five minutes they just put together a doc spend 30 minutes with them uh get one of your um interviewers who's really good at selling in 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 the conversation work with them getting maybe get a hiring manager and work with them to build that little talk track but the basics would be like in an interview, spend five minutes uh, at the beginning, like introducing yourself, asking them about how their days went, asking them they need to go to the restroom or take a break between meetings, then diving into interview questions, leaving 10 minutes at the end. So uh, that's more tailored towards like interviewer training versus how to teach recruiters how to sell. But I'd say my advice for a founder would be focus on people like actually understand, like the entire company understanding how to sell versus yeah. don't worry too much about the recruiter in particular. Let's stick on the founder advice for a second because you know people say founders should spend you know significant amount of time recruiting, I don't know, fifty percent, whatever, some large percentage of the time recruiting, and then the question is, okay, how do you best use that time effectively? Because there's a yeah. variety of different ways that one could be spending their 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 time. How do you advise founders on how to think about that? Yeah, a few things. So you know, where can you add the most leverage? Easiest would be closing. It's very concrete. If you have candidates at the at the offer stage, you prioritize. You you know figure out how to trust um, who to trust when they're telling you like prioritize this one, close them. You know, at the beginning, you could probably close every single candidate uh, yourself or have conversations every single one towards the end. You need to figure out some way of prioritizing. Um, another would be uh, generating top of funnel that's unique. Like Alex, our founder, gives us unique access to certain people. Some of the strongest people we brought in scale have been directly through his network. And he generates that network through, well, one, like just constantly meeting networking himself. And, and at, like when he meets an impressive person, asking that, like sharing information about scale, not explicitly saying like, please submit referrals to me, blah, blah, blah. That's like super robotic, but just like forming a good impression of himself, sharing a little bit about the problems that we're facing, 
saying, Hey, if you know anyone interested, love to chat with them about this, or I'd love to pick their brain about that and, and then bringing them in. So that's another way you can, um, add leverage. And then third, you don't need to necessarily do this as a founder, you're head of recruiting or head of engineering, do this, but like pulling in your, uh, people who are invested in your success, you know, the uh, investors, early stage yeah. investors, your, your VC talent partners, whatever, and just keeping you top of mind for them. So like, hey, here's like every month or so, like, hey, here's like a really important role for us right now. I'd love if anybody have your network, keep us in mind. Yeah. So that's another way you can multiply your impact. That makes sense. W- when should a founder start thinking about building their executive team? Uh, when should they start thinking about it? Um, well, I think quite and how early, should how should they start thinking about it? That's a good question. I think by the time I've gotten to each of my companies, they were uh, so cruises and people. I mean, I was a new guy. I wasn't helping <laughs> our founders think about how to build their executive team at the time. Scale is already 25 people. And Alex is certainly already thinking about building out his, his executive team. So I'd say like around, around 10, you can start thinking about how and how to think about it. There's what do I need in the next 18 months? And you're not going to be able to hire like the full team, right? There's like how, what complements this team the best. Uh, what am I really excited about and what can I drive myself? What are the people here? What is somebody who can fill this gap? Maybe they're not like the, our long-term VP of blah, 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 but like they can do a great job and I want to invest in their success. So they feel like they're getting a lot of growth here. And like, where do we have the need? So really it's not just building this exec team in a vacuum, but assessing where you are specifically in your specific situation and what you need and what complements your team to start off with. Then it's, when it comes time to actually make this hire, you probably realistically, like you want to be open to like, you know, like multiple searches at the same time, opportunistically talking to multiple, but like, you're really only going to have time for like a couple, one to two at most, like really concentrated exec searches at a time. And I generally would advise working with an exec firm, you know, the general cost, you're looking at something like a hundred thousand dollars, roughly like 33% of first year salary for um, making an executive hire. And in terms of paying the agency agency fee for that executive hire, and oftentimes it's um, retained search. So you're, you're paying them whether you make the hire through them or not. But I think it's well worth it. Not even if they don't end up, you don't end up hiring someone that the exec search firm sends you, but just to get you a lot of reps and at bats. Um, and this could change if you're like, you know, the fourth time founding company, you don't need that. But if you're like newish to, to founding, just get, get your at bats and talk to a lot of people, take some people through the process. And I think it's, it's worth the money. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's segue into the people. We talked about bringing people in. Now let's talk about retaining people. Maybe start with how to build an HR function. Yeah, just from the beginning. So uh, I would say <laughs> you're making your your HR hires typically comes, your first HR hire typically comes after your first recruiter. I mean, if you're growing, it's like you're unlikely to regret. If you have the right person, you're unlikely to regret making an HR hire. They're not going to like be the reason why you aren't successful. So if you, I would say like, op, again, like opportunities to be open to whatever, by the time you're 50 people, you should definitely have a dedicated HR hire. That would, I would say is like the, um, the latest you should bring in an HR hire and you can do it as early as I would say 10 people. And at, if you're doing it at 10 people, they should be willing and able to do other things beyond HR. Uh, because you don't want someone who is over engineering processes that won't actually be followed. Like sometimes I get founders asking me like, Oh, like, you know, we want to start building, um, career guides. We're a 10 person company and, and, and levels. And like, it's, it's slow the roll. Like you, people yeah. joining a startup should be able, ready, excited about ambiguity and not need that level of, of, um, being told to them what success looks like. And so you don't want that HR hire, like over engineering these things, or like you also need to be able to comfortable with some level of risk. 
ultimately it's not about following every, you know, there are some pretty obscure laws out there that most companies don't follow quite frankly. And it's okay because it's no one's really going to get hurt if you don't, I'm not talking about like harassment type, but like, Oh, like a certain sign you'd have on this door, things like that. Anyways. And so you don't want someone who's just like constantly finding work where there really isn't work to be done. So earliest 10 people, latest 50 people would be my guidelines. And you want someone who can be uh, a generalist to start off with and someone who is able to, uh, and you want to know exactly like what skill set are you complementing? Are you in an industry where it's really important to have everything right from a compliance standpoint? Or is it more about uh, someone who can just handle the variety of things that can happen? It could be like a combination of like workplace slash office management slash events. Um, or it could be actually like you really want, like you have some high financial people who expect a lot of growth and you really want to start investing in and feedback systems, performance management systems, feedback, bi-directional feedback, like both getting feedback from your employees and also giving them feedback uh, so they know how to grow. So like first option asking is like, what problem am I really looking to solve and what are the needs of my company? Realistically, um, in practice, like you're probably going to not end up, you're not going to hire someone who's like specialized for any of those things. You just want to like try to hire a good generalist who's able to handle whatever comes your way. And then uh, once you're at about, I think in early stage company, the general ratio, it'd be one HR hire. So like HR, not including recruiting, not including like office management and workplace, one HR hire for every 50 employees. I think if you're at like three HR people at a hundred people, if there's like real work for them to do, it's not like you're, that's not one of the reasons why your company's going to fail, but that's like the rough, rough heuristic you're looking at. And I think by the time you're a hundred people, you should definitely have somebody who is like that dedicated strategic HR leader, not just the executor. But if I see more and more often companies making that like higher at 25, quite frankly. So it's not unreasonable. Yeah. And, and talk about the, what to look for in that, that higher, how to get that right, a more senior. Yeah. So more senior one. So you want someone who is understands that they are a business leader. And so first off, someone who um, you can communicate with because your, your senior HR hire is your business partner. Ultimately, you want someone who you feel comfortable being very honest with. You want someone who won't judge you at your worst self and just someone who can work with I mean, this is generally true of any executive hire maker. There's someone you can yeah. you can work with, but I think it's extra important in your HR HR person because that could be that should be your advisor, advisor to your business, and you'd be able to have that balance of give and take where you be like, this is how like our business needs to be run, but also that like, hey, I understand that you have our best interests at heart, and me making this decision that you recommend will be the best for this company in the long run. So that that's first off, business value, personality, and like personal fit, and then you want someone who's able to be strategic, analytical, and bring in those like impressive HR people, you know, not your traditional playbook followers, but that HR leader who can attract your, um, you know, much more creative problem solvers and thinkers. You are going to need, it's very valuable to have someone who's just is excited about HR operations and someone who makes sure you do your benefits correctly and payroll is run effectively. Um, that's, that's super valuable as well. Don't get me wrong, but that's not like the number one skill set you need in your VP of people. Yeah. And what mistakes do you see people make when hiring their VP of people or what, what's the way to get that right in terms of... Yeah. So what I've seen some of the... So what I've seen companies regret their VP of people hire, it's it's when they've uh, brought in that like that traditional person who says, well, this is just how the way things are done. Typically, I'm talking to founders of companies that like to... Um, innovate more and stay on top of the latest and things change. Like, like someone who has a VP of people has 20 years of experience, like 10 of those might have been like super like 15, like at this point, like the HR tools, like 
evolved pretty quickly. I'd say in the last, they need to be up to date with the last five years, certainly. And so the failure mode would be just that, that pattern matcher that someone who, who doesn't know how to adapt or, um, or stay on top of the latest. We're 250 people now, no VIP people. We're, we're feeling the pains, uh, pains <laughs> significantly. Let, let's, let's dive into some of the, some of the major areas that, that would fall under these roles. Maybe let's start with how to build a culture or build systems processes around employee feedback. What, what have you seen done well or what, what, what mistakes have you seen to, to watch out for? Yeah. So the biggest thing is you want to, um, you want to have people to feel comfortable being honest. So you need to be upfront with exactly what they're signing up for. Is this an anonymous survey? And if it's not, you know, why is it not anonymous? That's one. The second thing is to be able to actually act on the feedback that you gather uh, I'd say a common failure note mode for a very well-meaning founders, leaders, whatever, is they just want a ton of feedback and they genuinely care about improving change. But realistically, they're not being able to make these changes at the pace. So you're like collecting feedback every two weeks and you're just getting this feedback fatigue on both uh, on both levels. Employees are like, I gave this feedback, nothing's changed. And the flip side, founders are like, oh, like I, I can't make all these changes. So um, only solicit feedback that you can actually follow up on and action would be uh, the number one piece of advice I'd give. That's like the most common failure mode of very well-meaning people. And the number two, which is honestly more important than number one, but less common failure mode is like, let people be, make sure people are, are going to be rewarded for honesty and not punish them for telling you things you don't want to hear. And that is a combination of one sending, uh, being very clear, like this, you know, this is anonymous feedback. We're, we're doing cohorting. You're not going to be able to identify you based on blah, blah, blah. And then two, when you are getting feedback, you know, ultimately in order to get the, the richest feedback involves a conversation and back and forth. If you, they say something like, that's not true. I don't like that. You are wrong. Like not saying that in the moment. And I, I definitely made this mistake in the past, not being defensive, not saying that moment. Just thank you for your feedback. Take some time, process it, follow up later. I appreciate X, Y, and Z. I wanted to understand more about A because I thought blah, 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 but you know, don't, don't rebut in, in the moment. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Let's get, more, get a bit more tactical. How, how about around building career ladders and performance review systems? Yeah. So um, I think the first thing to ask yourself is your performance review system. What is the problem that you are looking to solve? Is it And, and performance review systems usually uh, achieve multiple purposes. And so the, the main purposes would be, one is giving feedback to employees. Two would be promotion decisions. Three is like giving them a rating or a ranking. And then four is informing their compensation. All these things are all very correlated with each other, but you make different design decisions for your process based off of like which one you're really optimizing for. An early stage, I believe it's most important just to optimize for giving feedback for people to grow and feel like they're growing. Not for this um, very sophisticated rating system, um, not for um, like very like formulaic compensation decisions, just do something simple and, and consistent. And so um, my suggestion would be Understand like exactly what you're optimizing for with your performance management system. And most likely it'd be giving feedback to people, uh, giving them feedback from a diverse set of people that they work with. So, you know, collect some peer, peer feedback, get, uh, have the manager deliver that feedback. Have ideally um, your HR person is someone you trust to like actually scrub and review all the feedback and like add to it. <laughs> wow, I forgot I did this back in the day when we had like our first couple of performance reviews, I would read every single uh, um, every single feedback synthesis written by every single manager and compare it against the feedback that was coming from 
the direct uh, their peers to see if it sort of captured the main themes and to make sure that nothing was said like just like in a very like hurtful like unnecessarily hurtful way. That's probably overkill in retrospect, but it'd be good to have someone uh, sanity check um, all the feedback that's being delivered. And on a very very tactical level, I think Lattice is the um, it's the main tool that most companies use. I'd say Lattice is very very functional. There are others out there. I don't even remember which ones I evaluated in addition to Lattice two or three years ago when I did this. And then prior to that, I would just say Google Sheets. Yeah, shout out to Lattice. I'm, I'm an investor there and, uh, and and the other awesome. What are your philosophy on leveling? I'd say don't do it too soon. And I'd say what is what is too soon then? I'd say like at a minimum, like it should be at least 50 people before you introduce granular, granular levels. Uh, you should have the type of company where you should... It, it, Encourage the culture where every person is focused on maximizing the pie and you want them to trust and you want this to be true that if they're focused on delivering value for the company first and foremost, then that will lead to success for themselves. Now you want to believe that you also want that to be true. So like, you know, take this very directional piece of feedback with a grain of salt or directional advice with a, with a grain of salt. I think historically, it's been a lot more likely that companies do this too late. And what I've seen in the last year or two, that it's more likely that companies would do this too early. And then uh, my second thing is, like, no one is going to get this exactly right. Like, get to start things off, two things. One is getting a, a career ladder from another company, ideally a company that's like a couple years, just a couple years beyond where you are today. And get their general career ladder. You can either get like, if they have like a generalized uh, ladder, get that. If they have the end one, that's usually like the one that you can turn into a generalizable one because usually has more specific things you can just like scrape off for other roles. So get one of those from another company. We worked with a comp consulting firm to uh, one, like help level all of our employees and for the sake of mapping them to the right comp bands because you can't have pay equity without without knowing where people are um are leveled and so we did this around i want to say like 80 to 100 people or so and it was worth it i think to have that sense of like because we did identify some people who were underpaid did identify a couple biases that we have forced managers to think through like really the performance of their it could be a forcing function thinking through like who their their stronger performers are and where where their relative strengths are etc so that's generally how I think about leveling. I feel like I've lost track of the initial questions. Want to pause here? Yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate it. How about comp in general? What, what advice do you see you giving founders who maybe they start the company, they're not thinking super sophisticated about comp, but then they realize, okay, now now we've got to start to really implement a system here, a process, you know, bands, etc. How, how do people get a comp system? Yeah, it's tricky. So I don't know if anyone feels like they have like the perfect comp system. So what you're trying to balance, you know, is, is budget with, with retention and people feel like they're, they're being treated and, and paid fairly. And within your budget, there's generally two broad categories of budget. There's your salary budget and then your equity budget. So I'd say one, like ideally like align with your investors, your board members, whatever on what is um, target dilution. Once you have that, uh, have a very high level hiring plan, do a very high level of like, Hey, we're trying to bring in X people here. This is the average like buckets. Like here's like, three executive roles. I'm going to allocate roughly this amount to equity wise. Here's like 30 senior roles. Here's like the rest of our junior roles, whatever. And do this like very high level um, budgeting exercise, similarly on the, on the salary front. And then um, when it comes to paying people fairly, so it's my thoughts have evolved on this over time. I think mostly because the last, 
I mean, the markets changed a lot. We had COVID and things really slowed down. We come out of COVID and yeah. it's, it's a very hot market right now. And so my, my general advice is to be clear about what the system is. I will admit that I don't think we've always been here you know, at Scale been clear about what the system is and how people can get promoted, how people can get additional comp and what your philosophy is. Uh, I like if you're the founder, you really most likely don't have time to be like thinking through all this stuff yourself. So either like have, you know, this might be a good interview question for your VP of people, quite frankly, or like you bring a consultant to do that. But realistically, you're not going to be able to do all that. But I think um, the one takeaway would probably be communicating what the system is and having it be a consistent system, acknowledging that it's an evolving system, and here's your plan to improve it. Uh, it is more important than getting this hyper optimized system that really perfectly balances like yeah. the budget relative to who's getting what. And I think I probably did too much of the latter, quite frankly, when I was doing it. Yeah, makes sense. We've talked about a number of very specific items. What are other things from your time, whether it's at Cruise or at Scale, whether it relates to recruiting people or retaining people that you guys think you did well, or whether it's tips or frameworks or tactics that uh, other companies could learn from? What did we do well? I'm always thinking about what we should have done better, could have gone better. What actually went well? Um, Surely many things did or else we wouldn't have gotten to where yeah, we were today. Huh? There yeah. must be some things we did well. <laughs> um, I mean, I will say this isn't like directly answer your question, but one thing that came to mind is, I mean, if your business is successful, it's good for people. So if you're thinking, don't think about those two as like separate. Um, yeah. You know, some when people are are upset or complain, they're unlikely to be saying like, gosh, I don't work hard enough. <laughs> um, and But at the flip side, like people will leave because they don't see the company growing. And some amount, I mean, at some point, diminishing returns on hard work, et cetera, et cetera, don't get me wrong. But like, if you're making your business successful, it will, it's a, it's a, it's a flywheel that runs itself where you are able to attract more talented people. And they're more likely to be, you know, great people that other people want to work with. It, it solves itself. Um, but, uh, you don't want to be entirely dependent on business success, obviously, but, um, you know, business success helps with people's success. I think on the hiring front, I think the best thing we did well was the founder made it clear that hiring was really important and demonstrated that through his actions. We had time to talk about it at all hands. We were, I was giving, you know, reports and metrics updates. Um, he would them through, through his actions that he would prioritize it by moving something as calendar to make an interview with the candidate, things like that. Not all the time, obviously things happen, but ultimately like as a founder, you want to be, um, exhibiting and rewarding the behaviors that you want to encourage in, in the people, the company. So that's one of them. Alex at scale wrote like a really great, when I was here, like he'd already had this um, memo he had written about like how to hire, like hiring 101 and it demonstrated that he was thinking a lot about, it. he was spending a lot of his time on it and he's spending his time on that. Then, you know, it's worth, that's worth spending time on. I do think hiring is like one of the most impactful things. Obviously my role, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to be saying that, but I genuinely believe that. Yeah. Um, so yeah. What can we learn from his hiring memo? I, mean, I loved his blog post on, uh, you know, hire people who give a shit. W yeah. What, what else is in that memo or have you learned from him? Yeah, about absolutely. Let me answer the question in a different way. Let me go through. There's a different doc that I'm realizing he wrote that I think was more useful to talk about. So uh, there's one, one thing that he wrote was uh, the types of people we want to bring into scale. And he wrote that, and this is like very similar to, it was an early version of writing a company values. Because ultimately, if you like the types of people you want to hire, you're essentially saying like, what do you value? Um, which a company value. So uh, he wrote that there were four things on it. Um, the one I think that resonated the most with me that I really liked was people having an internal locus of control. So people who have an internal locus of control view themselves as people who can change the world, change their environment, who view themselves as being able to control outcomes versus external locus of control, 
I mean, people who think like things will just happen to me and I have no control over it. And you want people who, A, like believe that the company can change the world and B, who err on the side of like, I can change things within the company. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.